This show is made possible by members and donors who sign up at bestoftheleft.com and also by gotomeeting.com, green technology helping reduce the need for business travel. And now welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Counterspin, The Progressive, The Young Turks, The Rachel Maddow Show, The Colbert Report, and NPR with a bonus clip for our iPhone app users from NPR. When 33 Chilean miners were trapped in a privately owned mine with a terrible safety record, the private company washed its hands of the matter and the miners were rescued by the Chilean government with the assistance of the U.S. government agency, NASA. In the topsy-turvy world of the Wall Street Journal's editorial page, this all points to one lesson. Capitalism saved the miners, as Deputy Editorial Page Director Daniel Henninger's October 14th column was headlined. His argument basically consisted of pointing out that the rescue operation used a special drill bit that was developed by a private U.S. company. He advanced the argument as a rebuttal to Barack Obama, who recently suggested that conservatives believe that, quote, we put our blind faith in the market and we let corporations do whatever they want and we leave everybody else to fend for themselves, close quote. Rather than saying that that's not what conservatives really think, Henninger said, quote, Yeah, that's a caricature of the basic idea, but basically that's right. Ask the miners, close quote. For their part, it's not clear that the miners are as enamored of the free market system as Henninger is. Most of them are suing the for-profit employer who trapped them underground for more than two months. One miner in particular might be worth talking to, Luis Urzua, the mine foreman who's credited with leading the miners through the first 17 days when they had no contact with the surface and only two days' worth of food. Urzua, whose father and stepfather were both left-wing leaders killed by the Pinochet dictatorship, said the key to surviving in those darkest days was majority decision-making. Not to take anything away from the free market drill bit, but workplace democracy seems like the real hero of this story. There's a bizarre disconnect in this country over the issue of the free market. Because after all, it was the free market and the lack of regulation that led to the collapse of our economy. The big banks brought the house of cards down by chopping up and rebundling mortgages and by peddling derivatives and credit default swaps with no government oversight. It was the free market and the lack of regulation that led to the disastrous BP oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico. The free market destroyed the economy. The free market sullied to see. And yet this election season, we have one Republican candidate after another singing the praises of the free market. It's not just Rand Paul and Sharon Angle and Sarah Palin. It's every single Republican. We're not in the realm of the rational here. We're in a religious zone. Even as the free market exposed itself, Republicans have responded with the chant, all hail the free market. And they're getting away with it because Democrats, with the exception of Bernie Sanders and Dennis Kucinich and a couple others, haven't been brave enough or consistent enough to take on the idolatry of the free market. It's a false idol, a graven image. And until progressive leaders denounce it as such, it will still hold sway over the nation, I'm afraid. 
The scientists reported that there ain't no purpose And the theologian told me that it's all been designed And now I'm trying to maintain objectivity The world won't illuminate what really matters And I'm in a perfect mortal meaning extractor Processing the complexity Born of the earth We were given a job How are we doing in terms of poverty? Um, well, it's, I'm sure we must be doing fantastic because we had record-breaking tax cuts in 2001 and 2003. And the Republicans, conservative Democrats, mainstream media have been telling me tax cuts are always the answer. I, I forgot the question, but I know the answer is tax cuts, right? So luckily, we, I'm sure we're way out of poverty. We don't have to worry about that. Huh. Well, you look at these numbers I just found. Um, in 2009, approximate number of people living in poverty in America, 45 million people. That is the largest increase in poverty rate since 1959. And it's only since 1959 because that's the first year we started keeping numbers. And then, uh, well, if you compare us to the rest of the world, among developed nations, we are the third worst. You know, they all have uh, conservatives or republics are always like, oh, we're number one, we're number one. No, we're not number one. We're third worst in poverty. Uh, and how about the number of Americans on food stamps? I I'm blown away by this number. 41 million Americans are on food stamps. That's so large, I can't even comprehend it. One out of every six Americans is now being served by at least one government anti-poverty program. One out of six of us. More than 50 million Americans are on Medicaid. That's health care for people who can't afford it. 50 million, okay? You want more? One out of every seven mortgage in the country is underwater, okay? Delinquent or in foreclosure. That's gigantic! And that's why all those banks are still insolvent. They're using accounting tricks. One out of seven of their loans are garbage, okay? They're already in foreclosure or in delinquency. All right, you want more? Let's continue. Nearly 10 million Americans now receive unemployment insurance, which is almost four times as many as we're receiving in 2007. Now, think about that for a second. Let's pause there. You know how some Joe Miller, Sharon Angle, some of the Republicans running throughout the country are saying, well, these unemployed people, you know. You give them unemployment insurance, it gives them incentive to be lazy. Now, they should get their ass out to work, right? So, here's what I don't understand. How did the number of people receiving unemployment insurance, it quadrupled in the last two years, right? Let's be generous to say three years, right? Quadruple. So did the number of lazy people in the country all of a sudden quadruple? Where they're like, oh, you know what? I really got to take a load off. What do they got? In unemployment insurance? Yeah, yeah, come on. Let's all leave our jobs and take a really small fraction of that and try to, you know, continue our family and our income uh, in the same way off of unemployment insurance, which is going to run out at some point. That's what 10 million Americans decided all, well, to be fair, 2.5 million were already unemployed. 7.5 million Americans decided at the same time because they're all lazy. You think that makes sense? Or could it be that these Republican policies didn't work and it destroyed our manufacturing base 
and the, the, the companies that hire people inside the United States? All right, now, one last uh, devastating fact. One out of every five children in the United States are now living in poverty, okay? That is 20% of all the kids in the U.S. are in poverty. This is how you make a banana republic. You give more and more tax cuts to the richest people in the country. You make them richer and richer. And as I've shown you many times over the last 30 years, the top 1%, their income rose on average by 281%. The top 1% in that time made an extra $973,000. They did excellent. Now you see what's happened to the rest of us. 20% of our kids live in poverty. One out of every six of us uh, is now being served by some sort of anti-poverty program. You saw all those numbers. They're devastating. When are we going to stop giving more tax cuts to the rich so they can get a little richer? That's not how this country was built. If you're like most Americans, then the politics of the last 30 years has driven you to the point where you're totally ready to pack up and move to Canada. Or maybe New Zealand, because it looked beautiful in Lord of the Rings. In any case, you're totally serious about it this time, and you're going. Well, you're in luck, because with GoToMeeting, you can work from anywhere and still meet with clients and coworkers online while sharing your screen with one or many people all at once. Visit GoToMeeting.com and use the promo code PODCAST for a 45-day free trial. You could be settled in your new Vancouver home and join socialized medicine before you had to pay a dime. That's gotomeeting.com promo code podcast for this special 45-day free trial. All these buildings and mountains slowly that arise before Everything they're doing is killing jobs. Now it's time this administration and its Capitol Hill allies stopped its job-killing agenda. Where is the initiative to try to put Americans back to work? Where are the offerings from my friends on the other side to get Americans back to work? Republicans would like this year's elections to hinge on jobs. Jobs, 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 jobs. That said, they have a mass killing of jobs to answer for themselves. We visit the scene of the crime next. Here we have a program that CBO has scored as making the Treasury a billion dollars over the next 10 years, and yet it could create credit equal to about $300 billion of credit to small businesses. But the Republicans are opposing it. And why is that? There's, there's no rational reason unless the goal is to drive the American economy into a double-dip recession. You feel like, honestly, that Republicans are... Uh, opposing the policies they're opposing and promoting the policies they're promoting because they want a bad economic outcome? Well, you know, I, I didn't come to D.C. As, as cynical as I feel here a year and a half later as a, as a senator. What I have seen is everything politicized by the primary elections and the general election plan for this year. And it, it certainly appears that all sense has lost all sorts of partnership to make American economy work for working Americans is gone. That was Senator Jeff Merkley speaking on this show back in July. That case that he made, you can almost see that it pained him to make it, has stuck with me now for months. I think about what he said there in that segment back in July a lot. The prospect that some of what Congress is doing, that is blowing it on the economy, is happening on purpose. I think about that a lot. 
Case in point, there is a program that is part of the stimulus that is credited with creating almost 250,000 American jobs. One program, that many jobs. The overall stimulus in total is on track to create three and a half million jobs. This one $5 billion program alone is responsible for a quarter million of those jobs. What do you get when you demonstrably create a lot of jobs in an otherwise horrendous economy for relatively little spending? You get a totally not at all controversial program. When CNN did a report recently on this program, they called it the stimulus program even a Republican could love. Republican governors who saw this program working in their states became some of the most vocal advocates for this program. Republican governors like Haley Barber of Mississippi, former head of the Republican Party, current head of the Republican Governors Association. Even he, arguably the most partisan governor in the country has talked about how much he loves this program. He credits it with creating 5,300 jobs in his state alone. This is not a controversial program. It works. It essentially subsidizes companies and organizations to hire people or to, or to keep jobs they would otherwise eliminate. It is very simple. It has very little overhead. It is efficient. It does exactly what it is designed to do. Republicans and Democrats alike, when they've seen how many people it has kept employed in the private sector, they like it very much. Nobody's arguing against it on its merits, either in the states or in Washington. And yet, and yet, the Republicans blocked it. In the House, where there is no filibuster and the Democrats have a large majority, an extension of this thing was passed twice. But in the Senate, well, in March, New Hampshire Republican Senator Judd Gregg blocked it. Last month, again, Democrats tried to reboot the program, keep funding it. Utah Republican Senator Orrin Hatch blocked it. Then last week, two days before the program that created almost a quarter million jobs was set to expire, it got blocked again. You can thank Wyoming Republican Senator Mike Enzi for it this time. The majority has known this program is going to expire at the end of this month all year and have taken no steps to reauthorize this important social safety net program. Not true. Democrats tried to reauthorize it in March, you blocked it. Democrats tried to reauthorize it in September, you blocked it. Democrats tried to reauthorize it last month, you, sir, personally blocked it. Even as you called it an important safety net that you were blocking. Republicans have never made a substantive argument against this program. But they have blocked it not once, not twice, but three times. And so a totally successful, bipartisan endorsed, non-controversial program crediting with put it, credited with putting a quarter million Americans back to work in 37 states, that program is now dead. So all the people employed in that program are now going to join the ranks of the unemployed, which is going to be horrendous for the economy. It is not only a bad situation and an individual tragedy for each of those Americans now out of the workforce again, it is also bad for the economy as a whole because those people are no longer earning any money, which means they are no longer going to be spending any money, which means we are all dragged down as a nation. But that, that personal and collective economic disaster does have a silver lining. As the jobs numbers get pushed into even worse territory than they are already in, that might be great news for Republicans in the elections. The last major jobs report before the election came out today, some private sector job gains, but otherwise not good. Not good for the unemployed, not good for the employed but still struggling in a lousy economy, not good for the economy itself, not good for the country. If only we had some sort of non-controversial, effective, efficient, bipartisan endorsed jobs program. Of course, that wouldn't be good for the Republicans. They'd probably block it. Now there's a ton about me because I'm a trying. 
My guest tonight is the former labor secretary and has a new book about the future of the U.S. economy. I can tell you the future of the U.S. economy, and it ain't books. Please welcome Robert Reich. We've met on the satellite before, but never in person. This we is did. great it's to an see honor. you. It's absolute an honor. You really seem more real. In real. In real. In real. It's amazing. Three D does you does you does you good graces. Thank now, you. Now, your new book is called Aftershock: The Next Economy and America's Future. Um, it is a slender volume. Does that say anything about the next economy? <laughs> It's a rather want, thin dossier, no, 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 I, want, I wanted to make it, it's much harder to write a small book than to write a very large book. I wanted to make it accessible so people could read it uh -huh. and understand where we're going. Okay, now, what, what, what do you think we need to do? You're one of these redistribute the wealth guys, right? No, 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 no. Oh, you think that rich people have too much money and you want to raise taxes on guys like me and that is class warfare. Well, no, no, I'm, it's not class warfare. I'm not a class war a warrior, I'm a class... Warrior, W-O-R-R, I-E-R. Uh -huh. Okay. Because I'm worried. Your here's cleverness what I, will not protect you, sir. <laughs> <laughs> no, what, here's what I'm worried about. Yes. I mean, we have so much of the national income and wealth going to the top right now that the vast middle class and working class, they don't have enough money to buy all the things that are produced by the American economy at full employment. And that's why we can't get out of the Great Recession. But guys like me, and I'll admit, I'm right up there in that top echelon, okay? <laughs> I earned it, okay? Nobody gave it to me. I'm up there, and I am a goal for those people. If I'm not up there untaxed, they've got nothing to dream about. What's a heaven for? This is heaven right no, no, here. No, no, I understand. So if you... So, but wait, wait, let me... You know you can't create jobs by taxing rich no, people. No, no, absolutely. No, I understand no, that. no one ever came nope. rich by taxing another rich but guy. But here's, here's the point. You would do better with a smaller share of a rapidly growing economy that would be rapidly growing because more people had money to buy into it than you will do with a large share of an economy that is almost dead in the water. Why, why, why? I still have all my money. <laughs> and if the economy because goes the, in the toilet, then everything becomes cheap and I can just gobble up the rest yes. of the world as yes. a rich person. No, I yes. would never do this because I'm a good guy, but I'm just speaking as a rich guy. I can go out there and just gobble up the real estate in every direction because I got the cash to do so. I'm like, yeah. and again, <laughs> I'm not Mr. Potter, but Mr. Potter kept his head during the Depression and gobbled up the town. Isn't that the lesson of that movie? Keep your money and gobble up the town? Yes, but, but, but that movie, do you remember the Potter's Town? It was, it was an awful, angry place, and that's what we are potentially creating. If people are angry and anxious and frustrated and worried about their incomes, not only does the economy not grow, but also we have an ugly, angry politics. But if people, we have if they have ugly, angry politics, that gives me something to talk about every night. <laughs> and I get richer. Yes. Just speaking as a pundit, not yes. as a human. Yes, not as a... <laughs> 
Now, so you think that you said there's an enormous gap? Yes. Between well, the, the gap, the gap really, the, today's gap is between people at the very top, and I, and this is not resentment politics. This is just plain economics and you don't political resent science. the rich. Uh, no, but you don't no, hate no, them. no, 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 no. They Would you let your daughter rich, date a rich person? Uh, if I had one. Okay. A daughter. I have a okay. granddaughter. You do. Yes, okay. but she's only two. Uh, <laughs> But I think, but, but the point is that there is so much, and unprecedented, the last time we had this much wealth and income at the very top was 1928, and you know what happened in 1929. Uh, uh, the jazz singer. <laughs> Talkies, we're about to have a huge technological revolution in entertainment. Yeah. I mean, you know, we can't get out of the great, we can't get out of the great recession if we have uh, just a, a, a gap that essentially robs the middle class and the working class of the kind of money they need to go and buy all the things that have to, well, that we, can be well, produced how, in the how economy. Do we, how do we get here? Is it our fault? Like, how, who's, how did we get here? I mean, we've had a great economy for a long time, and now that things have gone south, why are you punishing guys like me? No, why no, no, there's no, like no punishment. I really, there's not punishment. Here's what happened. For 30 years, the median wage, the wage of the worker smack in the middle did not rise. Male workers actually saw no rise. The only way families could con continue buying stuff is if women went into the paid workforce yeah. and then if people worked longer hours and finally if families borrowed more and more and more against their homes. But you can't sustain that. The, finally that debt bubble uh, collapsed. It, it so, burst. So what's next? What, what, what is going to be the next economy? What is America's future? Well, you have to read the book. I won't, but, oh, I won't do that. No, you won't. <laughs> You seem like a nice guy, and it seems like my length of a book, but I yes. just won't do it. Well, other people uh, should. No, other, he, people, other people should. Here's, here's the choice we have. Either we have reform. Yeah. And we, uh, in this country, we have always chosen, when we understand the nature of a problem, we always choose reform. Reform that enlarges uh, the circle of prosperity for most people, or we have a backlash, an angrier politics uh, that starts picking on... Uh, immigrants, or starts picking on uh, foreign trade, or, or, or starts blaming uh, the poor, or blames even the rich. I mean, we... we no, we, wait, go back to that blaming the rich thing yeah. for a second. Is there any chance that if we do not give the poor and the middle class what they need, that they will gang up together on rich people and take away more from us than we should give them in the meantime? <laughs> That couldn't happen. I might need to read this book. Robert Rice, thank you so much. The book is... To accept that there are things in my life I can't control. They say love are nothing but a sore. I don't even know what love is. Too many tears I've had to fall. But you know I'm so tired of it all. I have no terror, these spells. Finding out the secrets will tell. Whatever it is, it can be named. There's a part of my world that's fading away. You know I don't want to be clever. To be being not superior. True like ice, true like fire. No one know that a breeze coming me away. No one know there's much more dignity in the feet than a Victory. I'm losing my balance on the tightrope Tell me please, tell me please, tell me please, tell me please And finally, Washington Post business columnist Stephen Perlstein prescribed some tough medicine for U.S. workers. 
well, for some workers. His October 12th column explained the current economic crisis, the whole years of living beyond your means thing, and noted that the impact is not universally shared. Quote, in effect, the burden of adjustment has now fallen disproportionately on a minority of households whose incomes and standards of living have fallen much more than everyone else's. Close quote. He does see reason for hope, though, and one of those hopeful signs is pay cuts. Yes, Pearlstein is heartened by the decision of UAW workers in Michigan to take 20% reductions in wages rather than lose jobs. He writes that it's true that workers tend to get very grumpy if their pay is reduced, suggesting he knows nothing about it, but, quote, the better choice is to take the jobs at the globally competitive market-clearing wage and hope to build back up from there, close quote, suggesting he doesn't know perhaps the preeminent lesson for workers of recent years, that those much-vaunted productivity gains do not guarantee wage increases as owners simply hang on to higher profits. What he does know is fatuousness, writing, quote, However unfair or unpleasant, it is precisely these kinds of structural adjustments that are necessary if the U.S. economy is to find a new equilibrium, close quote. And he winds up with a real howler, quote, I'm sure many of you are reading this and thinking that if anyone is forced to take a pay cut to rebalance the economy, surely it ought to be overpaid investment bankers, corporate executives, and newspaper columnists. That's how things would work in a socialist paradise, but not in market economies which are much better at producing efficiency than fairness, close quote. Well, if this is the sort of column the market magic produces, where do we sign up for that socialist paradise? Well, I don't know what I'm looking for, but I know that I just want to look some more. And I won't be satisfied till there's nothing left that I haven't tried. You can support this podcast at no additional cost yourself when you shop at Amazon through a special widget posted at bestoftheleft.com. You can use the widget to search for what you're looking for, or simply click through and shop the site normally. Better yet, click through on the widget once and bookmark that page to use every single time you shop. By doing this, Amazon will donate around 7 or 8% of the cost of your order to support this show without adding a dime to your bill. It's very little effort on your part, but can make a huge difference to support the show. Check out the widget on the right side of bestoftheleft.com. Thanks so much for your support. So Washington Post has a story, a very good story on uh, where's the money going, right? Because a lot of companies are actually making a decent amount of profits these days. Uh, the Dow has recovered, uh, companies have recovered, financial and non-financial. And so, for example, uh, I'll give you the exact number, actually. Uh, non-financial companies hold now $1.8 trillion in cash and short-term assets at the end of the second quarter. That's according to the Federal Reserve. So that's a whole lot of money. Now the question is, why are they not spending it to, to get more jobs, to stimulate the economy? That's what we're trying to figure out. And what are they spending it on? What are they doing with the money, right? Well, it turns out that um, they have, in the last quarter, they have um, purchased, I'm sorry, so far this year, they have purchased back $273 billion of their own shares. So Microsoft, IBM, whatever it might be, they're buying back their own shares. And I thought, that's kind of curious. First of all, is that a big number? Yes. Mm -hmm. it, like, 
it is five times as much as what they were doing the year before. So in a massive wave of buying back their own shares. And I thought, that's interesting, so why are they doing that? Because that's not necessarily nefarious, right? It, it's just a question of business tactics, etc. So, and one of the answers is they're a little worried about demand. So they're not sure there's enough demand to justify the extra employees, etc. And if you buy back the shares, that actually bumps up the price of your stock a little bit uh, for a number of financial reasons, right? So I'm like, eh, okay, but if you believe the Republican idea of, hey, if we give these guys more tax cuts or if we somehow give them more money, they're going to spend it. That's just not true. No, no, they won't spend it. They're they not spending spend it. it. Right. They're not putting it in investments, and they're buying back their own stock at five times the rate that they were you know last who, year. Do you know who has to spend money? Poor people. Yes, that's right. That's why food stamps has the highest multiplier of money circulating in the economy. So now that's one aspect of it. But then at the end, they tell us why it is that they're buying back the stocks. Okay. Uh, professor at the University of Massachusetts at Lowell, William uh, Lazonic, said it's totally wasted money. It does not do anything long-term for the companies. And I thought, okay, look, it boosts up their stock price a little bit, but the professor here is explaining long-term is actually not an investment at all. It doesn't do anything for your company in terms of people buying more of your products, making more profit, etc. So, Professor uh, Lazonic, why are they doing it? Executives like buybacks because they boost their own stock options. Yeah. You see, they have all these stock options that they're going to cash in at the end of the year. They want them to be at a higher price so that when they cash them in, they make more money. How do you get the stock options to be at a higher price when there's no more demand for your product or you're not reinvesting or you don't, et cetera? You do it artificially by buying your own stock, mm -hmm. boosting the price, you take home more money. They've been doing this forever. And uh, right now, according to CFO magazine, half of the uh, CFOs in the country, chief financial officers, said their companies will keep clinging to their cash. And only 0.7% said they expect to hire more full-time employees. Keep that number in mind next time you hear a Republican on TV saying, well, let's just give it to the corporations, and then they'll hire more people. 0.7% of the chief financial officers in those companies plan to hire more people. 50% plan to keep the cash. <laughs> okay. As much as possible. As much as possible. And they're, and they're doing it right now. Not okay. even for their company's health. And, Wes, what is the Republican plan for stimulating the economy? Eric Cantor, one of the leaders in the House. What? Just leave him alone, right? He wants a 0% corporate tax rate. 0%. Mm. So they can have more money that they can take home and not hire you with. I mean... <laughs> If you're not angry at what the Republicans are doing, you have no earthly idea what you're doing. I mean, imagine a poor guy out there in their country, a middle-class guy, who gives a vote to a Republican, thinking that he's going to stand up for mm -hmm. What? What a sad, sad joke. Well, I, look, I, I think, because, look, I'm not a total anti-capitalist. I think if someone's an actual entrepreneur and they start a business and they've suffered through, you know, years of poverty to get that business up and running, they should reap the rewards of it. But none of the motherfuckers running these companies fucking did that. None of them fucking did it. They all went to fucking business school and went out and went into a high-level fucking VP job where they betrayed all the people in the company fucking below them so they could sell it off and put fucking cash in their pockets. And they think they fucking deserve it. And you, chumps, have to fucking pay for it.
That's what you're being fucking told by the Republican Party. That's entirely right. I hate to break it to you. One of the Republicans running uh, was in private equity. Okay, you know what they do in private equity? Uh, they you now it sounds fancy, private equity, business, etc. Right? What they do is they buy companies and they chop them up, right? And that's that's the whole point, and that's the sp specific business model. And when they chop them up, uh, you lose your jobs, right? But he makes a little extra money. Of course, he makes now, extra money. Now, has he created any value? Now, sometimes, look, sometimes there's layoffs, man. It happens. I'm, a, I'm totally a capitalist, and I understand that. And sometimes sh uh, jobs get shipped abroad. I understand that, right? But these private equity guys, and sometimes, rare times, private equity guy will rearrange a company in a way that it creates a little bit more value. But in general, hell no, okay? They make money by laying you off and by sh selling off the parts, etc. My favorite then, is they always wrap it in fucking patriotism. Yeah. Nothing, they don't give a shit about this country. So Two years ago, the government took over mortgage giants Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Now we have a number for how much that move could ultimately cost taxpayers. It's in the neighborhood of $154 billion. Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac have worked for decades to get more Americans to become homeowners, for better or worse. Well, today, a former Freddie Mac employee would like to say he's sorry for doing such a good job fulfilling that mission. To introduce us, here are NPR's Adam Davidson and Hannah Jaffe-Walt from our Planet Money team. Jacob Kossoff will be delivering our apology today. We met him in kind of a strange way. Adam? Yeah, he was mad at me. A few weeks ago, I did a Planet Money story on This American Life. I interviewed a bunch of people who work on Wall Street, and I could not find anybody to say two things. Number one, thank you, America. Thank you for bailing out my industry and probably saving my job. And number two... I'm sorry. I'm sorry for whatever small role I played in this financial crisis. Nobody that I found would say either. And that is when Kasoff got in touch. I guess I was a little annoyed that you didn't uh, mention some people were grateful and apologetic. Some people like Kasoff. Kasoff, who used to work at Freddie Mac, and now he works at a bank. He wants to, number one, Adam, apologize. And number two, say thank you. He wants each and every one of you listening to know that he is grateful. I am. Thank you for the, the government money for Freddie Mac, which I think kept me employed. Uh, thank you for the general bailout, um, which I think helped all financial firms. Okay, now to the apology. Kossoff used to work at Freddie Mac as an economist in the mission department, as in their job was to promote the mission of home ownership. I would think I was putting people in housing that wouldn't be in housing, that uh, subprime mortgages were great and that they were helping people that were low income that normally couldn't afford to buy a house, buy a house. And I was very supportive and I thought subprime was the best thing in the world. It was not until the spring of 2008, just months before Freddie would be bailed out by the federal government, that Kossoff began to question his most fundamental beliefs. It's the first time I thought maybe there could be some times ever in your life possibly that renting could maybe be better. 
And then, one scary day, he got up the guts to say what he was thinking out loud in the office. Yeah, no, it was a bit like announcing, like, oh, there is no God. Like, the idea that housing was like God. It was like, of course it goes up. Of course it's a great deal. Buying is always better. Listen to your mom. Listen to your, your minister. Listen to the government. Listen to, you know, politicians. Everyone says it's better. So Kasaf is sorry he didn't realize earlier that homeownership sometimes is not such a great idea. When he thinks about it, there's something very specific he could have done. Right, so, so I go to freddymac.org? Kasaf takes us to an online calculator. He didn't make it, but while at Freddie Mac, he managed it. And at the top, there's a question in bright orange letters, am I better off renting? You plug in some numbers. What's your rent? What do you think is going to happen with house prices? Okay, I think house prices will fall negative 1%. It'll say appreciation rate. Try to type in negative 1% there. Negative 1. And then click Calculate. Get your results. Okay. Please fix following errors. Appreciation rate must be a number between 0 and 100. That right there, that is what Jacob Kassoff is sorry for. So I should have fixed that. <laughs> I think I should have worked harder to get that resolved. Sorry. Mm-hmm. You are sorry that you didn't allow for the possibility that home prices go down. Yes. I'm sorry that I didn't, you know, send an email or uh, work a little harder to get that fixed so the calculator would allow for the possibility of reality. Kasaf has no idea, but he imagines maybe some people could have used that calculator to come to a very bad decision to buy an overpriced house with a subprime mortgage when they should have just rented. Now, we ran all of this by a spokesperson for Freddie Mac, and he said three things. Number one, they're aware of this problem with the calculator, and they're working with their outside vendor to fix it. Number two, they don't believe that anybody should make a major decision, like whether or not to buy a house based solely on an online calculator. And number three, Freddie Mac believes that renting is a very good option for lots and lots of Americans, and they put a lot of money into that effort. I will say that at least as of right now, the calculator is still on their website, still not allowing for the possibility of home prices to fall. I'm Adam Davidson. And I'm Fana Jaffe Walt, NPR News. So let me fall if I must fall. I won't heed your warnings. First, I'd like you uh, to take a look at a very, very, very short video clip. You ready? Check this out. There are legitimate values in outsourcing, not only jobs, but work. That was Tom Donahue. Tom Donahue is the president and CEO of the United States Chamber of Commerce. There are legitimate values in outsourcing, not only jobs, but work. There are legitimate values in outsourcing not only jobs, but work. The President of the Chamber of Commerce, in his capacity as the President of the Chamber of Commerce, endorsing 
outsourcing, endorsing the practice of American companies shipping jobs overseas so those jobs can be done by people in foreign countries instead of by Americans. Quote, U.S. Chamber of Commerce President and CEO Thomas Donahue urged American companies on Wednesday to send job overseas. Donahue said people affected by offshoring should, quote, stop whining. The benefits of offshoring jobs outweighs the cost. During a trip to India around the same time, Tom Donahue assures business leaders, quote, we are very confident that outsourcing is here to stay. It would be absolutely foolish to try and stop the phenomenon. Woo, outsourcing, awesome. All of you Americans who have lost your jobs because your job was outsourced to India or China, the Chamber of Commerce has a message for you and it is, I quote, stop whining. The same Tom Donahue, whose Chamber of Commerce has championed outsourcing, is now running TV ads like this all across the country. Rising unemployment means families are suffering. Tell Richard Blumenthal to stop. His job-killing lawsuits are hurting Connecticut families. The U.S. Chamber is responsible for the content of this advertising. Richard Blumenthal's a job killer. So says the United States Chamber of Commerce. Here's what's awkward about that sort of an attack ad being launched by the, chambers of, the Chamber of Commerce of all people. Over the last 16 years, more than 87,000 Connecticut workers saw their jobs shipped overseas. Over the last 16 years, more than 87,000 people in Connecticut lost their jobs because a Connecticut company gave their job to someone in another country. And that is something that the Chamber of Commerce promotes. That's according to a new report out by the nonpartisan group Campaign Money Watch. 87,000 jobs lost in Connecticut alone due to outsourcing. But the pro-outsourcing guys want you to think that it's Richard Blumenthal. He's the job killer. Yeah, the Chamber of Commerce also running this ad in the great state of Missouri. In the past two years, Missouri's lost thousands of good-paying jobs. So why does Robin Carnahan support card check, an unfair scheme to grow unions? Did you see that figure that they flashed on the screen there at the beginning? Missouri lost 120,000 jobs. Take a guess at where some of those jobs went. Ding, 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 ding. That's right. More than 102,000 people who live in Missouri lost their jobs because Missouri companies decided they would rather fire Americans and instead have people in other countries do that work. Chamber of Commerce is all for it. Remember, according to them, outsourcing is good. There are legitimate values in outsourcing, not only jobs, but work. The Chamber of Commerce is flooding the airwaves right now with a $75 million ad blitz, almost entirely focused on blaming Democrats for killing jobs, even as they openly support American companies firing Americans to have the work done by people in other countries instead. It is because of the Chamber's out loud, well-documented support of outsourcing American jobs to other countries that turned the Think Progress report last week on the chamber into a political bombshell. Think Progress reported last week that the chamber's $75 million ad blitz was potentially being paid for, in part, by other countries. By companies in other countries, please send us your American jobs. And even by state-owned companies in other countries, which means those ads may be funded by foreign governments. Please, hire our citizens. And America, fire your own citizens. We like it when America is weak because of high unemployment. After that report came out, the Chamber of Commerce immediately denied it. They claimed that not one cent of foreign money was being used to fund their campaign ads. They did not produce any evidence to back up that claim. They just said, Arr, that makes us so mad. We don't do it. 
Trust us. Do you trust them? No, neither does anybody else outside of Fox News, apparently. Uh, further dogged reporting from Think Progress has now revealed that even though the Chamber of Commerce says foreign money doesn't pay for their campaign ads, the same Chamber of Commerce bank account that pays for all of those ads has taken in at least $885,000 from more than 80 foreign companies. Foreign companies like this one um, in Mumbai, India, which calls itself the world leader in IT outsourcing. Also, this one in Singapore, which says it is a leader in engineering services outsourcing. They also get money from this one in Bangalore, India. It's described as India's biggest destination for U.S. offshoring. They all pay money into the Chamber of Commerce account from which the Chamber pays for its political ads. And one of those political ads say, Democrats are killing jobs. Yeah. These are companies in countries that benefit directly from American companies firing Americans and instead hiring people in foreign countries to do the work. There are legitimate values in outsourcing, not only jobs, but work. That's the Chamber of Commerce, an organization that takes foreign donations, that advocates for outsourcing, and that is now among the biggest players in this year's elections. They're running tens of millions of dollars of almost entirely anti-Democrat ads. Now, Democrats in the White House have attempted to make this a big campaign issue in recent weeks. They've highlighted the fact that groups like the Chamber of Commerce are blanketing the airwaves with ads without disclosing where they're getting their money from. They don't disclose who's behind the ads. Could be an oil company, could be an insurance company, could be Wall Street. You don't know. Are you going to let special interests from Wall Street and Washington and maybe places beyond our shores come to this state and tell us who our senators should be? No. That's not just a threat to Democrats, that's a threat to our democracy. They don't disclose who's behind their ads. Their money could be coming from beyond our shores. President Obama making this a campaign issue. And that, of course, has probably predictably um, caused this reaction on the right. I would like to make this the biggest fundraising day of, in the Chamber's history. I am donating $10,000 to the Chamber of Commerce now. Because they can sure use the help. <laughs> That's amazing. Amazing. Uh, that was Fox News host Glenn Beck today encouraging his listeners to fork over their own hard-earned cash to give it to the Chamber of Commerce to promote the outsourcing of American jobs. Asking regular Americans, who presumably get paychecks and stuff, to help out the poor corporate titans. Because, because, you know, why not? Obama, boo! <laughs> I can't. Earlier this week, we spoke with Democratic pollster Celinda Lake. This was her assessment of this as a campaign issue with three weeks to go until this year's elections. This is an issue that is a good October surprise for the Democrats and the progressives. It's a way of really raising a fundamental question about whose side you're on. This is a great issue to unite uh, blue-collar voters of all kinds, Democratic-leaning union workers and Tea Party uh, people, all of them against foreign corporate influence. All of them say that uh, we're, our, our economic system is being undermined by these policies, and these corporations are trying to pay for a Congress that will keep these policies going. As if on cue, 
A new poll just comes out from Bloomberg News revealing the extent to which Democrats really have been handed a political gift here. When voters are asked how their view of a candidate would be affected, if they learned that that candidate's campaign was being aided by advertising paid for by anonymous business groups, the percentage of people who said they'd be more likely to vote for that candidate is a whopping 9%. The percentage who say anonymous funding would make them less likely to vote for a candidate? 47%. But wait, there's more. Another polling firm, Survey USA, has just re released the results of their poll on the same topic, and the numbers are staggering. The percentage of those polled who say they have a right to know who's paying for these ads? 84%. Try getting 84% of Americans to agree on anything. We don't even agree that cheese tastes good. We don't even agree that the earth is round. 84% say we have a right to know who is funding these ads. When asked whether these groups have their best interests in mind, 63% of poll those polled said no. The percentage who said they would less likely be less likely to vote for a candidate who benefits from anonymously funded ads is a solid majority at 56%. And are you paying attention, Democrats? If, if a candidate insists that voters have a right to know who's paying for these ads, the percentage of people who say that would make them more likely to support that candidate, 47%. Attention Democrats, this is a long, slow curveball right over the heart of the plate. So let's presuppose for a moment that you actually enjoy this show. Now, if that's true, please consider supporting it with a $5 monthly membership. I actually quit my job as a climate activist to pursue this show full time because this is where I felt like my talents could best be put to use and I could have the biggest impact on the world. But I really need your support to keep going. I produce 10 shows a month of fearless coverage on all the hot button issues we face, maintaining a rock solid schedule posting shows at least every third day. So if all that is worth five bucks a month or as little as $55, a year, a little discount for you, please consider signing up for a membership at bestoftheleft.com. Members even receive bonus audio and video content on top of the rest that doesn't make it into the final cut of the show. So please, again, check out the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Thanks so much for your support. In the debate over what to do with the Bush tax cuts, many Republicans have tried to argue that raising taxes on the wealthy is really something else entirely. Washington Post columnist George Will tried the tack on October 10th, slamming Barack Obama as a chronic campaigner who's trying to arouse the masses with a deceptive line about how the cuts will mainly affect millionaires and billionaires. Will offers a counterexample, quote, In Obama's Chicago, a high school principal can earn $148,000. A police officer with 25 years on the force can earn $114,000, not counting overtime. If the principal and the officer are married, supposedly they are rich, close quote. So the tax hike on the wealthy is actually a hike on cops and principals? It's too bad the Post feels like it has to print this stuff, especially since just a few weeks ago they published a chart that actually explained how the tax plan would work. Will's married couple would face little, if any, tax increase, as much as $400, but probably less. As the Post explained, actual millionaires would be treated differently. Under the Democrats' plan, those with incomes of $1 million or more would pay $6,000 less compared to pre-Bush tax rates, but they wouldn't receive, as the Republicans' tax plan would provide, the full $100,000 tax break that Bush gave them. 
So the Democrats' tax increase for millionaires and billionaires would be negligible for the Chicago public servants that George Will is attempting to use to get a better deal for the truly wealthy, which includes himself. Uh, when we get uh, massive tax cuts uh, in 01 and 03 when Bush pa uh, passed them, uh, they were record-breaking. They were the largest tax cuts in United States history. That everything was going to be all right, uh, that we were going to have more jobs, and that we were going to have higher income, and we were going to have a better economy. Now, we know what happened with jobs. Disaster. We lost 8 million jobs by the time Bush left office uh, after the crash, right? And overall, uh, remember, uh, by the time the eight years were done, about a, a little over a million jobs have been created when you count the whole eight years. At the end, we lost eight million and we fell off a cliff, right? Remember, during Clinton's eight years, we created 22 million jobs. So on jobs, they were a million percent wrong. But hey, you know what? Maybe our income went up overall. Not more jobs, but our wages went up. Is, is there any chance that happened? Apparently not. David K. Johnson, with a brilliant analysis of the numbers, let me start telling you. Uh, between 2000 and 2008, the American uh, people lost $2.74 trillion in income. $2.74 trillion less in income over those eight years. An unmitigated disaster. Now, if you limit the numbers, you say, hey, wait a minute, that's not fair, okay? In, because the tax cuts were complete at the end of 2003. And we had a, you know, a dot-com crash when Bush came into office, and it's not fair to count the massive crash at the end. Why isn't it fair? He caused the crash, right? But if you want to be incredibly generous and start in 03 and end in 07, what, what the Republicans say, those are the only years you should count. Those are the only years because those are the positive years. They're not positive. Did you see that number? Show it again. It, there's still doubt. Our income, national income, in the so-called glory years of Bush, is still down $951 billion. It didn't work under any circumstance for any year. When you do it over the eight years, like I said, $2.47 trillion we lost, which is inexcusable. Now let's look at some of the other numbers here. Uh, the average taxpayer lost 5.7% of his income in that eight-year period, okay? So down 5.7%. That's equivalent of $3,512 a year which then becomes the equivalent over eight years of $21,000. You lost, the average American lost $21,000 in income under the Bush years. No, but they tell you tax cuts are the answer. That if you have more tax cuts for the rich, you're going to get richer. It's going to trickle down. Does it look like it trickled down? No, it looked like they took $21,000 out of your pocket. Unmitigated disaster. 
All right, continuing, if that weren't bad enough. All right, we say, okay, look, at least between 2005 and 2007, boil it down to the peak years as the real estate bubble blew, got larger and larger and larger before it burst and it crashed. If you want to be super fair to the Republicans, say, only consider those years. Well, where did the wealth go in those years? Yeah, there was some wealth created. What happened, right? Well, look at this. Turns out 30% uh, of the income that was raised went to people making over a million dollars. So yeah, yeah, somebody got rich. The millionaires got rich. Well, oh, you didn't get rich? You lost $21,000? Well, sad day for you. You should have been making over a million dollars. You know, remember Bush joked around about, hey, some call you the elite, I call you my base, referring to the millionaires? There you have it. David K. Johnson referenced that as well. Now, uh, how about our budget? Okay, now you lost money, but did the government lose money? Because they tell us tax cuts creates more money for the federal government. Somehow magically increases revenue, even though you're lowering taxes. That's called supply-side economics. Let's see if that magic uh, worked out for us. Well, during the first eight years, 2000-2008, we lost $1.8 trillion in, a, in federal revenue. That's according to the Tax Policy Center. Okay. Now, if you include the bubble burst the last two years, which has also been a drag on our economy because of the crash, it's $2.3 trillion. But you know what? Let's be generous again. Forget the $2.3 trillion number. Under Bush, even if you don't count the drag and count the crash, we lost $1.8 trillion from the budget. What happened? I thought we were going to get more money. No, we lost money. You guys crashed the budget, created enormous deficits. But today they come out and they tell you, no, the answer is more tax cuts. Well, if you look at the numbers, you'd have to be stupid to believe that. How many times are we going to get tricked into this? All right, now, one uh, other thing for you. Uh, if you were uh, <laughs> lucky to be in the top one-tenth of one percent, point one percent of taxpayers that were making over two million dollars, well, hey, we finally have a winner. Okay. You guys got one out of $8 in the tax cuts. So 12.5% of all the money that went back, so-called went back to the American people, went back to the top 0.1%, to the people making over $2 million. So once again, somebody got rich, okay? And it worked out for somebody, the people that put George Bush into office. They, they, it was fantastic for them. But for the rest of us, we lost, on average, as you saw earlier, $21,000 for uh, every person in the country. That money went somewhere. You see where it went. So the next time they come talking to you about tax cuts, what they're not when they talk about job creators, how we're going to get more jobs, flat-out false. Not even close to true. They talk about how your wage is going to go up, flat-out false. As you see there, not even close to true. What they're actually telling you is, no, you don't understand. We need to shuffle more money up to the top 1% and the top 0.1%. That's what we need to do. We need to do wealth redistribution all the way up to the top. Does that sound like a good idea to you? Well, if you're in that to top 1% or top 0.1%, it's a fantastic idea, I guess. If you're the rest of us, it's a disastrous idea.
Thanks for listening, everyone. I have to skip uh, listener voicemails today. Sorry about that. Uh, or you're welcome, depending on your opinion. Uh, today, instead, I'm going to play an interview. Uh, I was interviewed on uh, Citizen Radio because that's the only place I ever get interviewed. And uh, I did that because the hosts of that show and myself had a little bit of a disagreement about the rally that's happening today. This show is being posted October 30th, big day of the rally. I hope to see a lot of you there. So because I heard an opinion coming from them about the rally that differed with my own, I asked to uh, go on their show and debate them about it, and this is what happened. So Jay, are you going to Washington for John Stewart and Stephen Colbert's rally this weekend? I am. I am, actually. I'm leaving uh, tomorrow, and I'll be there all weekend. I mean, I, I used to live in D.C., so I have friends there to visit anyways. Cool, 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 cool. So you, me and you and Allie disagree on – this is, like, the first thing we've ever disagreed on, which is kind right. of a, a monumental moment. <laughs> which means we're going to end the friendship immediately. Right. Well, I, I, I assumed. Everything else we know about, uh, you like Citizen Radio, we like Citizen Radio. Uh, Only because it's the best thing ever. Right. You like Best of the Left, we like Best of the Left. And because it is the second best thing ever. And that's, right. all, we, that's all we know, Jay. That is, <laughs> I think that's all we know about each other. So this right. is the first time we talked about something that wasn't your show or my show. And right, exactly. Yeah. Well, so I, I, think, I think we might agree more than you may be under the impression that we uh, agree or disagree. Is it because uh, you use the word I, words, I'm going to come on your show and debate you? <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, it might have been something like that that, that <laughs> gave you that impression. But so, so let, let me lay out for you your position, the way I understand it. So it, basically, the way I've heard you guys talk is, uh, you know, John Stewart did, uh, you know, a series of clips, uh, you know, among, among a history of, of things that he's done, where he kind of uh, makes... Um, makes a uh, comparison between the far left and the far right and says that they're both crazy. And this makes him, uh, you know, a centrist and that's unacceptable and, uh, and, and so on. Um, the most specific clip recently was comparing like really, really genuinely insane people with code pink. Right. And insane in people as in like war criminals and supporters of war criminals. Right. Right. And, and yeah, yeah. And the tea party and everyone uh, in, in that genre. So on that, we totally agree. Right. And like, I'm just as irritated about him doing that as you guys are and all of that. So this debate actually has nothing to do with that whatsoever. My concern is that you were so ready to, dismiss this event in its entirety because of that disagreement that you have with the way he runs his show and you know what kind of cheap laughs he's willing to get well i'm gonna gonna cut you off right there just because it's not just the false equivalency that everybody saw on the tv where he compared as we said war criminals to Code Pink. There was also the official mission statement of the rally. I took notes. Where, Yeah, Jamie took notes. Where at this point we were told that they were trying to kind of walk back that initial statement by Jon Stewart by fully explaining what the rally was going to be about. And Jamie and I were actually really open-minded about it because we we love The Daily Show. I think this is a really, you know, it could be a great opportunity to educate voters. We need Democratic voters to very badly come out in the midterms. So I was like, all right, fully on board. What's this all about? 
please educate me. And what did it say? Sure. So I have it. And Jay, before I read it, I just want to say that, like, I completely empathize with you and was exactly in your position, actually, until I read this. And I don't know if you've read this either. I haven't. Which would be pretty awesome if you just totally change your mind on the show right now. That would be fun. Because uh, it was really depressing because I was in Kansas City and I met a lot of really cool fans of the show. And I've gotten emails from all around the country of people, kids, who were so excited. And they were like, hey, are you going to this march? Like, I'm so, I'm flying myself out. I don't have any money. I'm flying to D.C. <laughs> right. And I'm sure that's – I'm sure you've gotten similar emails and that's why you're taking this position because it's like, fuck yeah, you know what? If we can get all of these – awesome kids to gather in the name of what politics and comedy everything that we love that's amazing so here's the mission statement that david swanson wrote about this on his blog it's this is a quote i'm mad as hell and i'm not going to take it anymore now before i go on just remember code pink as silly as you might think they are as silly as some protesters look remember what they're protesting they're protesting these wars that have killed over 4,000 american troops that have killed over a thousand iraqis misplaced, over a million a million i'm sorry yeah. <laughs> misplaced countless etc um okay i'm mad as hell and i'm not going to take it anymore who among us has not wanted to open their window and shout that at the top of their lungs seriously who because we're looking for those people we're looking for the people who think shouting is annoying counterproductive and terrible for your throat who feel that the loudest voices shouldn't be the only ones that get heard and who believe that the only time it's appropriate to draw a Hitler mustache on someone is when that person is actually Hitler or Charlie Chaplin in certain roles. Are you so, one of those people? Excellent. So hold on. Let, let, let me go ahead and cut you off there sure. and, say, and say that I don't really care about what's what you're saying because I agree and I am, I, I would assume, equally as irritated with you about that statement. Um, but my position on this has more to do with, I don't give a fuck what that rally is about. My thought about it is that, um, you know, there are people who are, who are going, who could be, you know, a counterweight, you know, a small one, but could be a counterweight to that message. The, the idea that sprang to my mind instantly when, when I first heard you guys say, you know, you mentioned it and it was kind of in an offhand way and you're like, oh yeah, you know, they're being centrist and like blah, blah, blah. And, and you kind of brush past. And I thought, why don't you guys, uh, you know, encourage your listeners to go and hold signs that say apathy is not the answer. Right. Or, you know, like, don't don't go join the rally to join that message. Mm -hmm. Go to the rally to counter that message. Oh, that's a great idea. And and in fact, any uh, any one of our listeners or best of the left listeners that are going and are listening, I think that would be amazing because you know. But at the same time, it's how hard. much? Yeah, it's difficult to be effective when the entire event sure. is framed in this narrative that it's not cool to be protesting. No, I, I totally understand. A and, handful but, of people showing up with signs that say apathy isn't the answer is great, and I think people should do that. But they're they're literally fighting. John Stewart and Ariana Huffington with that message. Right. By the way, at this point, Jay, we're not debating. Clearly, we agree, and we're just right. to, and we're just trying to figure out what to do. Yeah. No, exactly. And I, I knew that would be the case. I, I really did. And so, like, you know, the, the same way you guys have have gotten messages about you know your listeners being excited about the rally, I have too. And I even you know because I knew that I wanted to talk to you guys about this, I put out the question on my show. Um, you know, hey, tell me what you think about this rally. Do you think it's worthwhile? 
you know, are you going to go? Why are you going to go? Why do you care? And why do you think it's going to be effective? And I definitely, you know, I, I, I didn't get any negative comments, first of all. But, but the one, the one comment I made a note about was, of course, j- just like your listeners who, who say, uh, you know, oh, like, I probably have a stupid point to make, but here it is. And then it's like the best point anyone's made. Yeah. yeah, yeah so, totally. yeah. So, so my, my listener, Matt, wrote in and said, um, you know, that same thing, like, ah, you know, I don't, I don't have anything profound to say, but what I, the reason I'm going is because I want to get involved and this is an easy way to start. Mm-hmm. These are people I like and like, I don't know where else to start. And this is something that I can do that I think will be fun. And I thought like, that is your message. Right. It is exactly your message. And so when I, when I hear you guys say like, you know, get out there, fuck shit up, do what you can. We got to overthrow the system. We got hundreds of thousands of people coming to Washington, D.C. Should we go and, you know, speak our mind? Nah, fuck it. I was right, like, right. oh. Well, what, what was so upsetting to me, what I was going to say a while ago, was that the week before, there was that amazing rally with all these LGBT rights activists and all the civil rights activists and the anti-war and the unions. And it's like, you know, these kids could have gone to those, but... To your point, I, I do think that not only should you hold up signs to say apathy is not the answer, I say for all of our listeners and, and Jay's listeners, you should go there with actual pamphlets and information. Because if some people right. are going with a, you know, like your listener, Matt, and that was great, said if, if he is going to start with activism, then let's actually have real activists in the crowd handing yeah. out information on what you can do to stop the war and what you can do to do gay rights. But a lot of those people may go and be like, this is my, my first step into activism. And then if you have their hero, John Stewart making fun of activism, then it can actually be counterproductive. Yeah, but let's just say most activist events are fighting enormous odds anyway, so they shouldn't not go just because there's a chance that they'll be ignored. Jay, I love your idea of the signs. After we're done with this interview, I'm going to tweet it. I think that's a great idea. I love your idea, Jamie, of bringing pamphlets. Um, yeah, I think that if there is ever an opportunity to protest, you should do it. What annoyed me about this event was before these kids even had a chance at, you know, protesting, it's like they took the venom right out of it. You know, it's like framing it as it's not cool to protest, that it's annoying to protest, it's annoying to be passionate. It's like, Jesus Christ. We had a moment as a a liberal community to really gather, and they just did the most detrimental evil thing they could do to it right and and that that's where we totally agree yeah. so and, and so you know my my conclusion on it just wasn't to uh you know boycott it it was to take it on of course yeah. i you know I, i'm not like really the best one to to, to argue my own point because it's not like i've done a really good job of of pushing that message on my show i you know my, my show is less uh, geared in in that you know activisty sort of direction, even though I'm trying to take it that way. Yeah. Um, but you know, I, I thought like like this is your message, and so oh, well, that's that's what made me think of it. Well, thanks, man. I'm glad anytime yeah. uh, you debate doing something illegal, you think about us, right? <laughs> and, and we can send our little terrorist listeners to. But I, I really do like that, and I do yeah. think everyone should do it. There we go. So that's the relevant part. Uh, at that point in the interview, we switched gears and and played the uh, the fan favorite, totally improvised game. Who would you fight? In which I uh, tried to justify reasons to uh, beat up a puppy. So uh, if you would like to hear that portion of the interview, check out their show. Uh, subscribe at wearecitizenradio.com.
So that's it for today. I want to thank a couple of members. Gregory T signed up for a monthly membership back on June 29th and has stuck with the show since then. And John S signed up for a yearly membership that uh, that started on September 23rd. And John went ahead and signed up for uh, a little bit above and beyond the standard membership level just to help out the show a little bit more. So I appreciate that, of course. Uh, so John, Gregory, all the members and donors, I can't thank you guys enough. You guys make the show possible. Everyone listening can support the show by telling everyone you know about it. It makes a huge difference. If you have not yet done so, please check out the new volunteer tab at bestoftheleft.com. If you're interested in supporting the show, there's a variety of ways that you can do it. Uh, it's all laid out very clearly, I hope. And um, it's all really easy stuff that anyone can do, but would make a huge, huge difference. And I would appreciate it to the end of the year. So check that out. Stay connected to the show between episodes on Facebook and Twitter. Get details about the show, including links to sources and music in this and every episode in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you today from the heart of Washington, D.C., getting ready to rally for sanity, but being strongly opposed to apathy. My name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you 10 times a month. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Black and white You took apart a picture that wasn't right Pitch burning on a shining sheet The only maker that you want to meet A dying man in a living room Whose shadow bases the floor